to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you, which you received on, which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preach ye, to, you. to you, unless the message unless I you believed in vain. Yes, you believed in vain, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over five hundred brothers and sisters at one time. Many of them were were still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was in vain, not in vain. One, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim and so you have believed. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The, the word, word of our God, God stands, stands forever. forever. <laughs> Couple of things before we pray. One is we do have an Ash Wednesday service coming up on uh, this Wednesday, February 14th, uh, here at, at Augusta Prep at 6.30 p.m., um, there's more information on Slack if you're on Slack, um, but I will also be um, explaining a little bit about Ash Wednesday um, to you because I'm, I'm sure, I think I read somewhere that uh, Reformed churches slash evangelical churches, about 1% of those churches have a Good Friday service, so I'm sure you fall in that 1% and maybe you've never experienced that before, um, particularly the Ashes and what that means. So I will explain that later uh, today. Uh, you'll see it on Slack, but you'll also see it on social media. Um, but I would still encourage you to come uh, to that service. I think it will be a wonderful time for us to begin the, the, the Lent season as we, as we march into Easter as well, the celebration of the resurrection. Um, and that means we have no city groups this week. So that is the only thing happening this week is our Ash Wednesday service. So keep that in mind. Don't show up to your city group leader's house uh, this week uh, as well. But also, I want to say, too, um, this, the next three sermons are covering chapter 15, three or four sermons, which are 58 verses, uh, all having to do with the resurrection. And so I am well aware of the timing of that. Because you think, wow, this would have been perfect if you would have lined this up better, Kevin. And to that I say, mind your own business. Um, but it just means that we get to hear about it multiple times. And anyway, Sunday, if you're, gonna, if you're upset with me over that, Sunday is a day that we are to be celebrating the resurrection. Anyways, every week we should be celebrating the resurrection. The timing is perfect. Okay. So with that, let me pray, and then we'll jump into 1 Corinthians. 15. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness to us, for gathering us in your name this morning, uh, for reminding us already of the truth and reality of this good news 
of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. We're not here to be entertained. We're not here to uh, make ourselves known. We're not here to do any of those things. Uh, we are here to proclaim Christ. Um, and so I pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us minds to understand, um, that the distractions would be um, uh, to put to a minimum. God, and I pray that you would speak to us through your holy word this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Do I need to do something about this mic, Ryan, before? It's good? Okay. So let me just start this sermon with a question to you, okay? The question is this. What right now in your life would be considered the best news that you could receive right now? What would be the best news you could receive? Maybe you're awaiting a diagnosis. I know of at least one person who is awaiting that in the hospital right now. Maybe you're hoping for a positive pregnancy test. Maybe you're hoping to go on a certain vacation with your family or get that raise that you have been promised or uh, be approved for a loan to buy your home. That's exciting. Well, maybe you're hoping for that guy to ask you out, ladies. Or that woman to say yes to your ask, men. And that would be a dream come true for you. Maybe you're hoping for the marriage proposal. Maybe it's at that level already. Maybe you're waiting for that college or university to get back to you, to, to tell you whether or not you have, have, have made it into their particular college. But maybe it's only something that you can imagine, that you know that it's a long shot. That it's a long shot. So maybe it's that dream vacation, like we like to say, or that dream car that we want, or that dream job that we've had our eye on that just seems impossible. Or maybe it's even more impossible. Maybe, maybe you want to time travel. Maybe you want to go back in time to change some things about your life. Maybe do some things differently that you think will change the trajectory of where your life is at currently. Maybe that's the good news. Good news that's impossible. Well, in these verses today... We're confronted with the best news you will ever hear at any moment in your lifetime, and I would even say in a million lifetimes. And it's already happened. And it's true. You don't have to go back in time. You don't have to hope for it. Uh, you don't have to wait for it. And this news, this good news, hinges on just one thing. And it has nothing really to do with you because it hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you may be disappointed in, in, in that fact because you struggle to believe that's true. How could anyone rise from the dead? That's impossible. It doesn't make any sense scientifically. The late psychologist Sigmund Freud uh, developed uh, the psychological theory that human beings uh, invented God out of desire to find security in the midst of a fearful natural world. So simply, what this means is that God is wishful thinking to us. And it's this kind of wishful thinking that we've invented so that we can get through those difficulties, so that we can get through those sufferings. And so we have this crutch called a God to help us with that. And so we receive comfort from it and all of these things. Well, the Apostle Paul takes 58 verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to say that that is a vain idea. That, that, if, that is, if, that is, if that is true, 
that this is just a crutch, that this is just wishful thinking for us, then everything about us and everything that we're doing is vain. And so Paul argues against it. And he doesn't have to really do a whole lot of sort of apologetic type thinking because Paul knows and not only believes that this is true, he knows it's true because he's experienced it. He's seen it. So in these first 11 verses that we're looking at this morning, Paul begins with, with three realities concerning this good news of the gospel. One, it's that it's, it's received news. Two, it's historical news. And three, it's personal news. So it's received, it's historical, and it's personal. So first, received news. In these first three verses of our text in, in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul is beginning with a reminder uh, of the Corinthians' uh, belief journey. He's, he's reminding them of where, where they have come from. He's looking back over what it is that has happened among them uh, since he first came to them. And I think this is a really good exercise for all of us to, to sort of engage uh, our minds in. Is, is sometimes we, we forget about where God has brought us. Like, what were we before we came to faith in Christ? What was our life like? What sort of trajectory was our life on? And what were the circumstances surrounding our coming to faith in Christ? It's a great exercise to go through. Maybe do that this afternoon. Because it reminds you, too, that this good news was not only preached to you, but it's also good news that you have received. Wherever you're at in sort of your faith journey now, and I know deconstruction is, gets a lot of hype, but even if you're in the midst of that, and you call yourself a Christian, and you're struggling, you're doubting, you're wrestling, go back and remember what it is that God has done up until this point. That, that it wasn't an accident. It wasn't a coincidence. You didn't just stumble into Christianity and say, oh, here we are. I'm a Christian now. So what is this good news that we and the Corinthians have received? Well, William Tyndale, who was uh, the first to translate the Bible into English, um, said it like this that I, I really like. He says, the euangelion, which is the Greek word for what we call the gospel, uh, it, it signifies good, merry, glad, and joyful news that makes a person's heart glad and makes them sing, dance, and leap for joy. So by the sheer definition of the word, I hope that you understand that the gospel message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, isn't law declaring that you pay your own way. If that were the case, it would be the equivalent of someone saying to you right now, I have tickets to tonight's Super Bowl game, best seats in the stadium, and I googled this on StubHub, uh, it came up, that, uh, that, that the most expensive, uh, you know, best seats in the house at the Super Bowl tonight are, at least yesterday, they were at $125,000 for one ticket to the Super Bowl, best seats in the house. So this would be like someone saying, I have these tickets for you, but you have to pay the markup value to receive them. They're yours. I'm not giving them to anyone else. They're yours, but you have to pay me $125,000 for this ticket. So that actually turns the good news of Super Bowl tickets into bad news because you have access to something wonderful and fun but you can't afford it well, at least I can't afford it so it's out of reach it's right there but you can't quite get your fingers on it so the good news of this situation would be if someone paid the asking price 
not only for your ticket, but for your ticket and all your friends and family that you want to take to the Super Bowl's tickets, um, but also for your travel to Las Vegas, lodging at the fanciest hotel there in Vegas, I don't know what it is, all of your food costs, anything that you want and desire, and then on top of that, he's going to throw in a Travis Kelsey jersey, and you get to sit with Taylor Swift. Now, I probably just made that hell for a lot of you, didn't I? I just ruined that, didn't I, for you? So just cut that part out. But that would be good news. That would be something that you would be hype about. You would be joyful. You would be, you would be singing the praises of whoever this generous donor was. You'd be leaping for joy. You would, you would, you would talk about that for the rest of your life. Well, the gospel news that Paul has preached and the Corinthians have received is just like that, but a million times better. Paul says in Romans 6.23 that the gospel is a free gift from God that we receive through no merits of our own. None. We do nothing to receive the gospel. Which is this. God creating the world out of his overflowing love. Humanity, in the midst of that created world, created out of God's overflowing love, still falls into sin. In this perfectly created world, through their own volition. And yet God still covers them, shows his grace towards them, He doesn't wipe them out and start all over again, but he leaves them with something better. He leaves them with his promise to redeem not only our first parents, Adam and Eve, but the entire world, to make it all new, to set it all right. He doesn't give us what we deserve, which is death. Instead, He gives his only son to take on that which we do deserve. The the promise to, to, to crush the head of Satan, to defeat sin and death, is only fulfilled in Christ. And he took it all on for you. It's what he accomplishes in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And this is what the Corinthians have received from Paul. This is the message. There's nothing else that Paul has set out to proclaim to them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So to receive here means to join yourself to something. That's what the definition of that that Greek word that's used there means, to join yourself to something. And it's the same word that's used to communicate the intimacy of joining yourself to uh, your spouse. Becoming one with is what that means. So Paul is saying to the Corinthians, that you have received this message, that you have joined yourself, that you have become one with this gospel message. It is now who you are. Your life is now uh, wrapped up in this good news. So this is not a light act. There's implications here that are life-changing, life-altering turn your world upside down sort of implications here. And this is something the Corinthians have definitely done. So before getting to the content of the gospel in our second point, Paul uses two more um, subordinate clauses here to say, not only did you receive what I preached to you, so not only did you say, oh, that sounds, that sounds good, you know, I understand. I can, I can get behind that. That sounds like wonderful news compared to what we're doing now. So not only did they receive that good news, but Paul says you're also standing in it and being saved by it. Standing in it and being saved by it. So Paul is saying that the good news of Jesus is, is not static. 
It doesn't just stop at the moment of belief, but that it's ongoing. He's using active words here. That the Corinthians are constantly being renewed. They're, they're constantly standing in the good news of Jesus Christ. Because remember, it is the best news that any of us can receive. And that's where the Super Bowl news, or even whatever good news situation you thought of earlier in the sermon, stops. It stops at its fulfillment. And yes, you know, you, you might be talking about that forever, or maybe some, someone has given you uh, something and you just want to keep going on and on about it. But, but those same emotions and those feelings and, and what it did to you the very first time it happened, they're gone. They've passed. But not so with the gospel. Because we still stand in it. It's still ongoing. We're still being saved by it. We're still having our hearts uh, changed and renewed every single day, drawing closer to Jesus. And this is the same message that as, as a Christian now, you also hold fast to. It's, it's a message that you stand in currently. And it's a message that changes everything. So not only is this good news received, it's also news that has historical backing to it. Look at verses 3 through 7. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So Paul has also received this good news, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. So these verses here uh, have been referred to sort of informally as one of the earliest uh, creeds of the church. So much like the Apostles' Creed that we recited together this morning already, this creed laid down what it is that the church believes, and it points to four realities about this gospel we received, that we stand in and are being changed by, and, and what we hold fast to. So four realities about it. First, to say that the evidence Paul gives is biblical. So, so Paul refers to it a couple of different times when he says uh, this happened according to the Scriptures, according to the Scriptures. Now, that might be dis, uh, disappointing news to some of you or just unconvincing because you're thinking, well, of course Christians would say the message they preach is from the Bible. I mean, that's their book. Why would they not do that? To which I would say, well, if we didn't use our book, if we didn't use this Bible, I hope that would cast even more doubt onto the claims of Christianity. We're going to refer to the Bible because it's true. It's the account that we have of what Jesus, of what God has done in Christ. And it's exactly why Paul references, references it here amongst the Corinthians. Now, you have to remember or know that, that Paul's common practice when he, uh, he arrived in a new place, a new city, wherever he was, one of the first things that Paul did was to find the Jewish place of worship. It was to find the synagogue. And so this, the, the Jewish place of worship uh, in cities during the first century, they weren't like our cities where we have, you know, a thousand churches that we pass on the way to the church that we attend. There was usually only one synagogue there. Nobody got disgruntled with the synagogue and said, I'm going to go start another synagogue down the street or whatever it was. There was one. And so Paul found that synagogue, and that's where he went. So it was in the synagogues that Paul, as a fellow Jew, would sit and discuss the readings from the law and from the prophets. So when the law and the prophets are referred to in the New Testament, it is not referring to the New Testament part of the Bible that we have now. The law and the prophets are referring to what we know as the Old Testament part of the Bible. 
And, And within these conversations that Paul was having around the law and the prophets, Paul would seek to point to the, point out to them the thread of the entire biblical narrative is the risen Son of God, Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul could say, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And without doubt, this is, a, is the fundamental heart of the Christian faith. That Christ died for your sins. And it's according to what is written down in the Old Testament. Before Christ roamed the earth. So Paul is making a declarative statement here that the Messiah, the Messiah that the Jewish people awaited, that this Messiah was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And he, he is the one who died for our sins. So where does Paul get this from in Scripture? Well, more than likely, I mean, there's lots of places he could get it from. But more than likely, the main source uh, that most uh, biblical scholars think that Paul was, had, had in mind was uh, the words from Isaiah chapter 53, which many of you know this passage because it, it's, it's read a lot during the Easter season. We actually just had it, a little portion of it, in, in our assurance um, of pardon. I didn't know we were going to have that this morning, but that's what we had this morning from Isaiah 53. So I just want to read just a few verses from Isaiah 53, just to give you a taste of what was probably going through Paul's mind as he was writing down these statements. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, with his wounds we are healed. Now, these verses from Isaiah 53 and others are, we could say, the extended teaching of 1 Corinthians 15.3, what Paul had in mind there, that lets us know that Christ the Messiah died for a purpose, that it wasn't senseless violence, that it wasn't useless, that it wasn't just an empty death that a good man died so that we could have a good example. No, the purpose of his death was for your sins. He died so that you and I might be reconciled to God, that we might be at peace with God again. And this death took place in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures. So that's the first reality. The second reality of the gospel highlighted in this creed is found in verse 4 that says that Christ was buried after he died. Now that might sound like a silly detail to to offer, but what usually takes place after a funeral service? You bury the dead. You put them in the ground. There is a finality to it because you know that person is dead. We don't have a practice of burying people who are alive. And this helps solidify that Jesus did die a real death. It wasn't an illusion. It said that the, the, the penalty for Roman soldiers, uh, if they let a prisoner go, the penalty for that would be to serve their prisoner's sentence for them. So that, that, was, the, that was the incentive for them to do their, their, their job well especially if you're charged with the execution of prisoners. So the sentence for you would be death. And so these men, these Roman guards, who were also professional executioners, they did this for a living. They didn't just say, uh, hey, could you come over here and kill this man? No, these guys were skilled at it. So they made sure their prisoner was dead. 
So Jesus' death was without doubt final. And it, and it finished the work of the cross to secure the blood needed to redeem us from our sins. And the burial of Jesus confirms this. Because any talk of resurrection after burial requires that the tomb in which Christ was buried had to be empty. There couldn't have been a body there. And this is a fact that could be investigated. It's, it's like any, anything tragic that happens nowadays, like maybe it was 9-11 for you, or, uh, or any sort of other, you know, maybe a, a, a tragic school shooting, or, or uh, an earthquake, or, or something that has happened. It's things like this that we could go, that happened, we can go to that place, it can be investigated. The same is true about where Jesus was buried. So that's the second reality. And this is the third re the gospel reality of this creed that's also found in verse 4 that says Christ was raised on the third day and then adds also in accordance with the scriptures. And, and this use here of in accordance with the scriptures argues not only that this is something testified to in the Old Testament uh, scriptures as well, but it also marks the historical nature uh, of the gospel that hinges on the resurrection fact. So Tim Keller gives a great answer to why this is so important. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? And then I like the way the late professor uh, Jaroslav uh, Pelikan of Yale University said, he said this, he says, if Christ is risen, then nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, then nothing else matters. Because both of these men are just repeating in, in a kind of a different way what Paul himself has already said uh, later on in this chapter in verses 14 through 19. When he says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And we are of, we are of all people most to be pitied. People should feel sorry for us for believing this myth and being taken. One of the great things about the resurrection of Jesus, though, is that it was witnessed by so many people, which is the, the, the fourth reality of, of this gospel message that, that Paul lays out, that, that this gospel message that we've received. So, so not only do we have the biblical accounts of the gospel, um, we also have the accounts of eyewitnesses, real people with real eyes. That worked. Look at verses 5 through 7. Paul says, He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So Paul here, in, in these few verses, he, he lists five separate accounts of the resurrected Jesus appearing to uh, both individuals and to groups of people. And these aren't even all of the accounts mentioned of eyewitnesses seeing the resurrected Jesus. Now, how do we know that anything that we read about in our history books actually happened? We were in farmhouse the other night, um, and a guy walked, an older gentleman walked by, and he had a, a Vietnam veteran's hat on. So part of the reason that I can believe that that man was probably in Vietnam was because we have history books. We have eyewitnesses who were actually there, who actually experienced what went on there. And so we know we have someone living and breathing, walking by, by us in farmhouse to give witness to this sort of historical moment. 
And so this is one of the most important aspects of anything that we encounter in life. Any sort of news broadcast, any sort of news that, that, that we receive, even if it's past and we weren't even around yet, is eyewitness accounts. We would all agree to that. Not one of us would say, unless you are just a, a massive conspiracy theorist and you just think this whole world is the matrix. None of us would say that that's not true. And the same can be said about the resurrection. The exact same thing, the exact same sort of logic, the exact same sort of reasoning. Uh, real people who actually experienced this historical event personally or saw it happen in real time and what we still read about today and believe in. And so the resurrection account is not in some unique category of historical events. Although many try to claim that it is. Many who try to, uh, to debunk these eyewitness accounts have to come up with ridiculous theories in order to do so. Uh, one of these theories is known as the hallucination theory. I think I've told you about this one before. That says that people were so overcome with grief and sorrow that it, it, it caused them and forced them to have these visions of Jesus um, and he really, really wasn't even there. It was just a hallucination. And then an, another one I read about last night, uh, written by the, um, given by the liberal theologian uh, Chrisip Lake. And he wrote this in his book, The Beginnings of Christianity. And he suggested this theory, that the women who went to the tomb early Sunday morning and asked the gardener where Jesus was laid, the gardener then responded, he is not here and the woman, you know, women don't listen apparently, uh, rushed off to preach and, and proclaim the resurrection before the gardener could turn to point and say, he's not here, he's over there. Now, just a ridiculous claim that, that I know I heard light chuckles about. And you should laugh at both of those claims. And the reason you should laugh at both of those claims is because of the eyewitness accounts that we have. Because neither of these theories hold much water considering these things, considering on separate occasions and on a number of these occasions uh, that Jesus appeared, it was to, to groups of people all at once. So to say that it's a hallucination is to say all of them were hallucinating, all at the same time, at that very moment that Jesus arrived on the scene, they were all automatically hallucinating. And not only did these witnesses see the resurrected Christ, not only did they see the empty tomb, they also wrote these things down. And this makes up a good chunk of the Bible that we call the New Testament. The New Testament uh, scholar and author of Jesus and the Eyewitness, which is an excellent book if you want a, a book suggestion around this topic, uh, his name is Richard Bauckham. He says this, he says, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those, those Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament there, uh, the Gospels were written within living memory of the events they recount. So there, so there wasn't a, a huge amount of time that passed from the moment that, that Jesus appeared, from the moment that they uh, were all kind of interacting with Jesus and walking with Jesus. They wrote these things down pretty quickly. So from John's gospel alone, chapter 21, verse 24, uh, this is the disciple, speaking about John, who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Why? Because he saw it. He experienced it. He was there. He was present. Later, in Acts chapter 2, in Peter's first sermon that he preaches um, to, the, to the people, that Jesus has just ascended into heaven. All of, the, all of these events are, are very recent. Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension have all, have all just happened. Not a huge amount of time has happened, and Peter preaches this sermon. And he says these words in Acts 2.32, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. We all are witnesses to this. So Peter, in all he was preaching to, 
all had witnesses, even the doubters, even unbelievers. And if you don't know already, some of the people who were there who had a part in Jesus's murder were listening to Peter. And Peter says, you know this to be true. You've seen it with your eyes. So not only did Jesus' followers witness this with their own eyes and write it down for future generations, which is really like, I mean, that's, that's solid. They went one step further by also giving their lives for this message. And I don't know about you, but I'm not going to give my life for a lie. No matter how spectacular it sounds, I'm not going to do it. So with the exception of, of, of one of the disciples, the one who betrayed Jesus, all of the disciples were persecuted. Most were martyred for their claims. And even when put under the worst of deaths, they did not recant what they had seen and what they had heard and what they had experienced. And even if they wanted to, they couldn't deny it. They couldn't deny what their eyes had seen. They couldn't deny how the gospel of Jesus Christ had radically transformed them. The singer-songwriter Andrew Peterson, who my son and I met this week, uh, randomly in a bookstore in Greenville, um, he has a song written uh, from the point of view of someone who had witnessed the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's titled, I've Seen Too Much. And one of the lines, just a short line in the chorus, that just says, I've seen too much, too much to deny. And really for all of us, if you're being intellectually honest, and you have to be intellectually honest, well, in order to, to kind of throw this out, you, you have to kind of pull back on the intellect. You, you have to get a little silly. You have to get a little ridiculous, like the claims that I read about earlier, in order for this to, to, to work itself out, for you not to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And I know a lot of you, and, I, and, I, and most of you are very intelligent and very smart, so I know that you won't throw these things out. So if you're being intellectually honest concerning the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you have to say something similar to this imaginary man in Andrew Peterson's song. You've seen too much. You know too much now. The facts are stacked against whatever it is that you might believe currently. And as one pastor said, the gospel is historical news with ultimate personal impact. It's not merely an idea. The gospel is, is not just another religion among many. The gospel is not just another way of looking at the world, another perspective. The resurrection of Jesus doesn't give us any of those options. And this is where it becomes personal news for all of us. And this was the case for the Apostle Paul as well. Look at verse 8. Paul adds into this creed his own personal kind of account when he says, last of all, after all of these people, after Jesus has appeared to all of these people, all of these uh, disciples who faithfully followed him while he was on this earth, to, to, those, to those who stood at the foot of the cross as he died, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And so when confronted with the reality of the resurrected Christ, Paul made a turn. He, he, Paul had now seen too much, too much to deny and, and too much to continue on in the way that he was going. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Apostle Paul before he became a Christian, I want you to turn with me now to your book, uh, to, your, to the book of Acts, in your book called the Bible, uh, to the book of Acts, chapter 9. So just turn back to the left a little bit. 
after the Gospels, and you'll find the book of Acts, chapter 9. And this is the description the, the, the writer and historian Luke gives of what Paul, who was before Christ known as Saul, um, was up to before Jesus and then after, what he was up to after he came to know the risen Christ. So let me just read some verses here, verses 1 through 9 to start, and then I'll skip to 17 through 19. But Saul, who is Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, which is Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So in the meantime, uh, Jesus appears to Ananias and tells him to go and meet up with Paul. Who's, and he's completely freaked out by that because he's saying, this is the man who is murdering Christians. This is the man who is persecuting the church. And you're telling me just to casually go and meet him. And Jesus says, yes. He is a servant of mine now. And so he goes. And so 17 through 19, so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. So Paul was headed in one direction, persecuting the church, arresting Christians, beating them, killing them if need be, encounters the risen Jesus, and now is headed in the opposite direction. What we would say as the church the, the greatest missionary, Christian missionary to ever live. This was Paul. And he gives testimony to this back in 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to turn back there. In verses 9 through 10, when he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. I'm not even in the same camp as these guys. Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. It was not a waste. So Paul makes clear that his status as an apostle is undeserved simply based on his own past. He was an unworthy recipient of God's favor and grace toward him, and yet Christ still comes to him. And Paul was the worst. Paul was a, a religious fanatic, so that alone is, is, it can just be maddening. But on top of that, this, this uh, being a re religious fanatic drove him to murder and jail innocent people, splitting families apart based on their own religious beliefs. And still, the risen Jesus makes an appearance to a man like Saul and changes him, radically transforms his life. And so whatever Paul was before, God's grace has made him what he is now. And the same good news that Paul has preached and he and the Corinthians received that they now stand in, that they now hold on to, that they now are being changed by. This same good news 
It's the same news that I'm presenting to you right now. It's the same good news that that those in this church have received. The same good news that that, that they stand in, that, that we hold on to and are being changed by as well. And this is the good news, to go back to the theme of our letter, that enables us to live as a unified body in a fractured world. There's nothing else that can unify a church like this besides the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's out of this grace that we've received that we work, that we are changed. And so as we are changed, we go out and we spread this message of the gospel. We do the work of the gospel. Look at verses 10 through 11. Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. So so God's grace does not produce laziness. It doesn't. It doesn't, you don't just receive Jesus and then you just kind of sit back and say, I am good. That is not the good news of the gospel. But it actually works in the individual to lead them further up and further into their relationship with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. So it's personal news that, that changes the individual at the heart level. It softens your heart. It rearranges your heart. It causes you to think differently and live differently and treat other people differently. And because it's personal, that means you must now reckon with it in your own heart. And when I say now, I mean right now. Because you've heard the good news. Maybe it was the first time. Maybe it was the 100th time. You've seen too much. And now you have to respond. Now, if you're already a Christian, I just want to ask, will you continue to allow the good news to change you? Will you continue to uh, apply this good news to every sphere of your life? And if you're not a Christian... And this is something new to you, you're, and you're, 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 you're on this kind of discovery journey of what it means to be a Christian, what is Christianity, what is religion, or whatever it is. We're, we're glad you're here. Anyways, you're welcome here. But I have to leave you with this as well. Will you receive this good news today? This good news of the resurrected Messiah. The Messiah who, who, who covers you with his own blood so that you could be at peace with the God of the universe. Will you receive that today? I pray that you will. Let's pray together.